Today is September 17th, 2009. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, uh, the University of Texas San Antonio's Neurobiology Podcast. Uh, our guest today is Dr. Melissa Sines, who is a postdoctoral fellow in Christoph Koch's lab at Caltech. Hi. Hi. And around the room, we've got Charlie Wilson. Hello. We've got Fidel Santamaria. Hi. Todd Troyer. Hello. And me. I'm your host, Sama Karashi. So, hi, Melissa. So, I just, I wanted to just start off with a very general question. Um, you, your work is on cortical reorganization, and um, I guess we all know that the famous work in the 80s, all that Mersnick stuff on primary and somatosensory cortex established experience-dependent plasticity as, mm-hmm. you know, part of the, I mean, it's, that it's there, it's real. And um, But I think recent studies have backtracked a little bit on this. Is that accurate to say, and how do you reconcile your work if it is true to say that? Because mm-hmm. I feel like there's been a little bit of a, a, a backtracking in the mm-hmm. field on that. Mm-hmm. Well, I, the, the the question is now is a, under under what instances and, and what part of the brain um, is plasticity uh, is plasticity uh, possible? And um, we have been, we've we've uh, established that a great deal of plasticity is possible, much more than was thought a, a few decades ago, and we haven't backtracked. Uh, um, all the way to, to thinking that everything is 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 fixed after initial uh, critical periods. Um, you know, now, now the current understanding is is that um, the brain retains some degree of plasticity into adulthood, not as much as as when we're we're infants, but some degree of of, of plasticity. Um, and uh, and so I, the question now is is going to be well, how to how to best harness that plasticity? I mean, what are the best rehabilitation techniques that we can use? Um, and um, and or, or even are there any drugs, for example, that could uh, reestablish a, a, a window of, of, of plasticity? So I guess the, the, co- the controversial work that I was thinking of was mm-hmm. the stuff in V1, the Smarnikus stuff that came out a few years, I guess four or five years ago. Uh-huh. Um, so you think it could be Modality specific. This is oh, crazy. Right. Tell us what that. What, what, what <laughs> <laughs> it's like <laughs> But it was. Well, like, well, I, I can sum it up. You, you referred first to to Mike Merzenich's study in the in the somatosensory system, and you know they found if if uh, the use of of a, of a digit uh, of a finger was was restrained, then the part of the the, the cortex that represented that that digit would then be taken over by adjacent digits or adjacent parts of, of the hand. So, so that kind of thing where you could see a pretty dramatic shift in the body map across the, the surface of the brain. And um, that was that was also repeated in auditory cortex. Yeah, uh-huh. and, and there were very similar, um, I guess, analogous results in, in auditory cortex. Really clever experiments. Yeah, uh-huh. fantastic experiment. So that was revolutionary work. Um, and and this, this was revolutionary because this reorganization occurred in mature animals, adult animals, um, as opposed to um, developing animals. Um, the visual system, the visual co- visual cortex, primary visual cortex, has been a little bit difficult. So you would think the analogous um, uh, thing might be that um, if uh, you're made unable to see in one region of the visual field, if you have a scotoma in one region of the visual field, well, well, the cortex that represented that now 
start to uh, represent adjacent regions of the visual field where those start to start to move in. And there's some evidence that yes, that that does occur, um, but it's not. I think on on the surface, not as uh, dramatic as the big shifts in, in body maps. That these are single shot studies that show changes in receptive field properties that you're that you're referring to, right? Yeah, uh huh. Okay. Yeah, and then also fMRI studies in in in, in humans, and. I think it's not clear yet. What, is there really a difference between visual cortex and somatosensory cortex? Um, what one thing that that I think actually re- relates to this that that I don't get see discussed a lot is that in um, say in somatosensory cortex, if you move say like one centimeter across the somatosensory cortex map, you've moved a lot in map space. You've actually in one centimeter you you move to the other part of the hand. In visual cortex, it's actually not so much. If you move, say, a centimeter across visual cortex, you haven't moved so far in the, in the map of, of visual space. So even the same degree of distance of plasticity might not give you the, the most, the same obviously dramatic effect and shift of, of your visual map. And I think that's one reason why visual cortex might look less plastic. Um, in the way that it's been tested so, is that, so far. Is that yeah. they really focus on mostly on the scotoma type things? Because uh-huh. it just doesn't seem like a good analogy to me. Uh-huh. Uh, because what would be a good analogy? Well, the thing is that, you know, if, if something happens with a particular part of your skin, it's a particular functional unit, sensory yeah. unit that's been taken out. Yeah. A particular part of the receptive field, uh-huh. you fill that in, uh, conceptually, you fill that in, the objects uh-huh. move, what you're doing with that thing, it's not like you're taking out an object or particular yeah, uh-huh. part, coherent unit. I mean, we, we fill in our, uh-huh. uh, you know, our retinal blind spot all the time. And you, you, yeah. the whole point is to not pay attention to the fact that it's gone. <laughs> so the visual cortex may be working a lot harder uh-huh. to, pay, you know, get rid of the fact that it's mm-hmm. not there. Where you don't have the cues if you don't, I mean, if you don't have a digit or is something there, like that. Is there an analogous uh, visual unit of perception or something? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. You, there are some, some things where you get rid of. I mean, people. So it's hard to get rid of uh, something out in the world, right? But if you got rid of, uh, you know, vertical lines or something, uh-huh. right? <laughs> and would you get rid? Then would the vertical oriented uh, cells start to respond to something else? But it's very hard to, to do that. I mean, that's mm-hmm. what people were trying to get rid of motion by doing, you know, raising the cats and stroke mm-hmm. environments and stuff. And there are differences where they have motion perception mm-hmm. kinds of things. Mm-hmm. But some of it's just the the actual sensory uh, world is, is kind of organized differently, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and what you expect from a space map is kind of different than some of the sensory. And I think mm-hmm. the auditory system is an interesting and kind of in-between mm-hmm. um, where frequencies do kind of matter more or mm-hmm. correspond more out in the real world, but not completely, mm-hmm. right? And so if you over or underrepresent some frequency map somehow, mm-hmm. you are kind of doing something, but it's kind of fuzzier. So I, don't, I mean, I don't know what. Mm-hmm. So I just wanted to get directly to your work then on your recovery site patients and, and what you found in looking at MT processing. Can you talk a little bit about that work? Just describe it a little bit for our listeners. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, so so I, I, I did a study involving um, uh, site recovery patients. So these are patients who, uh, of which there were two, um, because they're, they're somewhat rare, because these are patients who had been profoundly blind since uh, early childhood. 
and experienced uh, partial sight recovery uh, as adults in their 40s, uh, thanks to um, uh, eye surgeries. And uh, so, so one question is, is now what, what are these individuals going to be able to, to, to see, given that their, uh, their brain, their visual cortex uh, uh, may have adapted to all those years of blindness. Uh, what we know from previous studies in, in blind people is that the visual cortex, uh, uh, devoid of its usual input, uh, becomes responsive to auditory stimuli, tactile stimuli, verbal stimuli. Um, so, so the first thing that, that we wanted to see was, um, well, um, assuming that they have these, this cross-sensory takeover and now they have regained uh, visual uh, input, uh, uh, how, how are those uh, inputs now now coming together? And so first we saw in their visual cortex that that uh, their visual cortex and specifically this area and, and T that, that you mentioned that was the focus of our study now responded to both visual and auditory information quite robustly uh, as we were able to measure with um, um, fMRI brain scanning. Um, so, so in this study we showed that... Um, auditory information and um, visual information could coexist uh, in the visual cortex. And, and that coexistence persisted for a long time because we tested these uh, participants many years after their sight recovery. So, so normally your visual cortex is primarily responding to vision, but in this case we saw evidence that it was doing, it was multitasking, it was the same area, it was doing two things, vision and sound. But um, I have a question about that. So when the patients are blind, the visual areas are going to respond with a certain strength, X. Uh-huh. Once you do the surgery uh-huh. and you test these uh, patients against for visual stimuli, uh-huh. does the strength of the visual response, uh, is the strength of the visual response the same? In those areas, in the individual areas, you mean as as a normally sighted person? No, no, no. Like for, on the, on these patients. Oh well, no, no. The the visual response is no, a dramatic increase. But the auditory pre- doesn't the, stay the same the, as be- the problem is that you don't yeah, know. The problem is we don't know. I didn't. I, we didn't get to to test these volunteers you didn't have before, before and after. And after. I mean, that would have would have we could have answered a lot more questions that way. Um, all all we can say is that they're. Their current visual responses are now within the the normal range of a of a normal visual response, and the sound response was of roughly the same magnitude as as the visual response. So it was a robust response. It wasn't a small uh, modulatory response. It was a, a, a large this, driving response. Uh, this, uh, as well as we can measure that with, with fMRI. Right, right. I but, have I mean, <laughs> added that disclaimer. In terms of making a, a discussion here, um, you can argue that this is plasticity, this is just released from inhibition during development. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, so are those sound no responses actually doing something? Are they functioning relatively well? they're always That's there question? for whatever reason, right? And yeah. because there was no inhibitory yeah. input from the visual cortex, visual stimuli, yeah. those were strengthened during uh, development. Right, uh-huh. uh huh. And yeah. what is yeah, also, I mean, that, and the other is like, what is the evolutionary advantage, right? It seems that they're not from, I mean, the work. 
example, some data of your work says that um, these um, visual areas respond to uh, just some type of noise, like the um, stereo noise, uh, stereo position of, no of sound. But they don't respond to speech or any other more um, advanced uh, processing. So what is the point of having this? What is the point of adaptation? The problem is you think that when the auditory responses move into the normally visual area, you're trying to say, yeah, maybe they do, but they don't actually do anything. They could, uh, they could yeah. be there uh -huh. all the right. time. There there's right. a necessity of adaptation, but they, they're just uh, inhibited during development, and they're always there. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. And the other is like, well, what are they doing, right? Why not yeah, just like, why, why invest ATPs in keeping these neurons alive? So you wouldn't Yeah, and so that's a question. That. That. <laughs> 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 okay, well, so are, are those responses... <laughs> I was not the designer of the brain. To worry. It sounds like you had a very good design. <laughs> <laughs> that's so. That's a question the field has been grappling with mm -hmm. for 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 several years. Um, those sound responses in the visual cortex and people who are blind are they actually doing something? Are they functionally uh, relevant? And there's more and more evidence that that they are doing something. Um, the first is that if you use something like transcranial magnetic stimulation to temporarily knock out the function of the visual cortex, that impairs the performance of, uh, of a blind person on certain um, uh, auditory and tactile tasks like braille reading, um, whereas that doesn't impair the ability of a sighted person who knows how to braille read um, in, in the task. And then there are also correlation studies um, so some people will show more, some blind people will show a greater response to sound in the visual cortex than others. Um, so does that uh, response correlate with their ability to perform uh, a certain task? And that correlation has been shown correlating it with uh, enhanced ability with sound, for sound localization in blind people and um, uh, also uh, verbal memory. Memory tasks. Um, so, so Pasquale, Pasquale Leone's lab, Alvaro Pasquale Leone at, at Harvard, the NGH, uh, his lab has been a, uh, a real leader in in, in establishing uh, evidence for functionality of those responses. So you got more cortexes than auditory stuff. So you gain some new auditory functions that you didn't have before, mm -hmm. and it, which is exactly what mm -hmm. sort of common wisdom would say about that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But the other thing common wisdom would say is use it or lose it, and so all that visual stuff should have been lost. Mm -hmm. It wasn't. It was mm -hmm. sitting there with uh -huh. nothing. All uh -huh. that circuitry, all those ATPs uh -huh. that I was worried about, they're <laughs> all sitting there getting used uh -huh. up uh -huh. for years and years and years uh -huh. doing nothing. And then as soon as the shades are lifted, bam, all of that stuff works. It works uh -huh. immediately, or uh -huh. did you test them it's, like months later, or what? Well, well, notice what I said was partial sight. Mm -hmm. Recovery. Now they can see again, but they have problems. This, the system is is back online, but it's not functioning. Uh, uh, it's not functioning uh, completely as it should. Yeah. And uh, so some aspects of the vision might be more hardwired than others, and may have survived um, a lack of usage and experience all those years more than than others. Um, like object recognition, face recognition, 
it's beyond the capacity of so other visual systems. Yeah. That's what's especially cool mm-hmm. about this with your work is that you you're looking at this area MT, which is typically wired to do motion processing, mm-hmm. and it's not just that it's picked up any sort of auditory signals yes. and it's processing those. It's doing well, that was auditory the motion, that was the and it's kept that, that core asked. property uh-huh. of being a motion area. Uh-huh. And that it's like it's almost kind of off-putting in its modular approach uh-huh. to like you know functional chunking of the brain. But it's it's uh-huh. it's a really clean, beautiful result. That, you know, and then it keeps doing vision. Uh-huh. Um, or it keeps doing the auditory processing even after vision is restored. Yeah. So that implies yeah, so that was, stability also, That was the right? question that, the, the, that we asked. We looked at, in particular, this area, MT, also called V5, that's well known for its specialized role in motion processing. So in visual. someone, visual motion processing. So in someone with a, with a uh, normal, normal vision, MT is, is a visual motion area. And uh, the question was, well, given all of the myriad of Functions that could have moved into to MT while the individuals were were blind. What was it? Uh, did sound motion processing in particular move into MT? So did MT maintain its function but switch to another modality? And and that's what we we found that MT um, w- responded specifically to sound motion uh, in comparison to a range of other sound stimuli that, that we tested. We tested speech, frequency sweeps, loudness changes, and, and it definitely showed a, a preference um, for sound motion. So has anyone looked at any of this stuff changes in the thalamus um, in terms of what happens in like, visual thalamus and stuff? I, I probably asked that because doesn't MT get a huge input for the pulmonar? more so than some of the other things. And so some of that anatomical specialization may be thalamic in nature and some of the takeover may be in the, in the thalamus or something uh-huh. that uh-huh. makes that special for, you know, the pulmonaris. Or kind of related Yeah, yeah it's kind of uh-huh. multimodal, maybe temporal processing there, uh-huh. that some of the takeover could be at the level of the thalamus or get integrated back and forth. And so has anybody looked in the thalamus and any of these? Kinds of reorganization, sensory Yeah, yeah, and, and what's the, what's the plasticity in, in the thalamus? That's <laughs> that's another an, another question. Um, the, uh, the the human studies haven't have, have focused on, on, on the cortex because the human studies are are, are are using bold imaging, which gives you good signal in the cortex of the brain. So <laughs> our ability to ask the questions is 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 is, is limited. Yeah. There have been somatosensory mapping studies in the thalamus uh, that show reorganization there as well. Yes. This sort of gets uh-huh. to this sort of fundamental idea of localization of function in the cortex. Uh-huh. I mean, everybody wants to like look at a place in the cortex and say, what's its function? Mm-hmm. And at one time it seemed really easy to point at something and say, this thing is uh-huh. it's always going to be the same thing in every single person, and uh-huh. that's its function. Uh-huh. And then for a while it looked like it's kind of up for grabs. The only reason visual cortex is visual and somatosensory cortex and somatosensory just seem to be uh-huh. kind of one is a little in front and the other one's behind. Uh-huh. So axons and racing in the right. cortex uh-huh. and sort out. Yeah. Way. And, and, but it, what you're saying is that function, maybe we don't necessarily define function the right way, but parts of the cortex do have functions. Mm-hmm. And those functions are pretty much burned into that circuitry of the cortex. And so, and they put limitations on what can happen in response to changes in input. Mm-hmm. And so, my you, I, you would say my somatosensory cortex might 
if I transplanted it earlier enough or something like that function its visual cortex, but really somatosensory cortex is somatosensory cortex, not visual cortex. Or maybe somatosensory and visual is the wrong way to break it down. Movement detecting cortex right. is different mm-hmm. from pattern detecting cortex, and that's the dichotomy that can never be violated. Mm-hmm. Are, there, are there any rules that can never be violated? I'm not going to go so far as to say that there's something so special about that bit of cortex that it couldn't have acquired some other function. But but I, I what what the study suggests is, is that after development, after that bit of cortex got connected up to, to other regions of the brain, then that was the, the that that bit of cortex became emotion processing so center it, and uh, and then the loss you think of things might be up for grabs not really but at some point yeah. something gets yeah solidified yeah so okay. I mean because because <laughs> you, have you seen um, Sura's experiment Nagarjuna Sura out of, out of out of MIT and and he he re- rewires the inputs. Into the brain, auditory and, and visual in in ferrets during mm-hmm. development, right? and let, let me make sure I, I get the direction right. Um, visual input is sent to um, the auditory cortex, and the result is visually responsive neurons in the auditory cortex that have a lot of the the receptive field properties, properties that normally emerge only in in visual cortex. So those are really powerful experiments that suggest cortexes up for grabs. And they, they work a lot they, they work a lot better when they because they ablate uh, auditory thalamus. Yeah. Right. So the visual neurons that are looking around for somewhere to go don't have to compete with the auditory yeah. uh, things uh-huh. that are going there. Yeah. So so you get rid of the competition, you have somebody yeah. out there looking for a partner. Uh-huh. There's no competition. So uh-huh. then it then it wires up. And then also I think I, mean, I don't know how clean these experiments are, but then the the um, then any kind of auditory acuity, uh, which way they did it, because I think they did it, it the way too. Uh-huh. I don't know. If you you know you you've eliminated the normal sensory pathway that you'd expect to be used, mm-hmm. um, and so the fact that it can do anything is is amazing mm-hmm. in terms of behavior. So they do it on both ends, and it mm-hmm. works better. I mean, I think they can get some things to work if they only do it one way, mm-hmm. um, but it works better if you. So I don't want to let you get away without talking about these synesthetes that you've discovered. You, you've you've actually done the definitive work on these visual to auditory synesthetics, uh-huh. audio visual, audio synesthesia, audio visual. One of one of my my synesthetes says, "Oh, just call me a syn." S Y N. And so the 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 synesthesia that that, that I had the chance to um, to to discover and, and work with is in an visual to auditory translate uh, translation. So what we found is that some people, and it's not that rare, maybe one out of a hundred people, when they see um, a visual object move or flash, any movement or flashing within their visual field, their brain automatically translates that into a sound perception. Um, so if you have this 
phenomenon. If you have this synesthesia, you have an enhanced soundtrack in, in life because things are, are moving and appearing um, around you all the time, and there are sound perceptions uh, associated with that. These sound perceptions are, are very consistent. Uh, they don't require uh, active uh, imagery or, or imagination. It occurs automatically. In fact, they can't be turned off. Um, uh, even if they are occasionally uh, distracting. And um, uh, someone who has this phenomenon is, will tell you, oh, well, this is something that I've experienced all, all my life. And the, the sound perceptions um, are, are not terribly loud. It's, it's a, a low level. They, they describe it as, as, a, as a, a low level sound perception. Um, so that um, you know, they can still hear the, uh, the, the so other sounds of, of the so environment example, at the same time. One yeah. of your um, subjects described seeing a bird hop uh-huh. as a noise. As a noise. As, as a, a, noise, a uh-huh. kind uh-huh. of noise. Yeah, uh-huh. or, or a butterfly fluttering by with every flutter. There's an automatic sound perception associated with that. And they say, oh, well, it really does feel like sound so that sometimes it's ambiguous. I, I see something flashing and I hear a noise and I might have to ask somebody next to me, do you hear that or, or, is, or is it just me? So how, how much can they, do they, is the sound percept quite different for different emotions? I mean, do they, do they group motions into things that sound the same? Well, it, it, it can vary from, from person to person. The sounds are, are typically abstract uh, sounds, beeping, thumping, whirring, whizzing kind of sounds, not, not voices or, uh-huh. <laughs> or, the, or this, you know, if, if they see a hammer or hammering, then they might have some sound perception, but it's not as complex as the actual soundtrack of, right. of, of a hammer uh, hammering. Um, and and each, like, each individual uh, may have the, their own particular uh, right. so that's, association. That's so what's consistent across individuals is that the sound perceptions are, are basic, like I just explained, and they are associated in time with, with the visual input. And I think that's the key and one of the most interesting things about this, this phenomenon is that you know, if, if you see some flashing lights, every time it flashes, that's when you hear the sound. And it's it's locked in time with with the visual input. And when you put these guys in a magnet, you see MT signals and primary auditory cortical signals. Or oh, I'm not ready to to say, <laughs> to, to say that to that yet. But but that's the the next step. The first step was 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 one just discovering and 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 describing this this phenomenon. Um, and and coming up with a, a test, an objective test, um, to 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 show that that the sound perceptions that that they claim to hear are are, are really real real sound perceptions. Um, and and then now what we're doing next is is uh, measuring this in, in the fMRI scanner to see if we can find a neural correlate of, of this effect to see which parts of the auditory cortex may be responding. Uh, have an enhanced response to visual information, and 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 then hopefully uh, we can use that information to teach us something about how the auditory and visual systems normally interact. Not only in people with synesthesia who might be an extreme case, but but uh, in in every one of us. So synesthesias are pretty common. How come this one has sort of slipped through the cracks, even though it's so prevalent? Uh-huh. In our, in yeah, that's that's a good question. Other kinds of of, of synesthesias um, associating colors with numbers and letters 
or associating visual colors and textures with listening to, to music. Um, those are, are more well-known, more well-studied. in the context have... of autism, there's a lot of that synesthesia um, experience. Like, you know, numbers are big and fluffy and white, or, you know, like these, these sort of... Uh-huh. Yeah, some research, researchers are, are, are making that association, and some people with autism may have, have, have synesthesia also. Um, but synesthesia also occurs in, independently of, 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 of autism. Um, so, so why has this one slipped through the cracks? At first, I thought, well, this since this one has slipped through the cracks, it, it must be rare. It must be re- really rare. But it, it it hasn't been difficult to, to find people with this, this synesthesia now that we can ask. You know, like I can take a movie around and show it to people and say, do you hear something? And now I can go around diagnosing <laughs> I guess people with auditory that. synesthesia. And it is, it's not any more rare at all. It's you know roughly about one in a hundred, just like just like the other synesthesia. So why did this one not go detected? Here's, here's my, my theory, um, is that it, it just, it doesn't seem weird at all if you, if you have this synesthesia. So why report it to a, to a researcher? It's, cause it's not, it's, it's not such a weird association. Okay. Things that, that move make a sound. Well, Sure. <laughs> Usually, or quite often, you have a sound associated with something that, that moves. And so now you have an individual who maybe has some extra sounds when they see something move or flash. But it doesn't strike them as, as bizarre. And uh, so, so for, for a person with a synesthesia to, to really realize that, oh, this is something different, maybe not everybody else experiences this, and then to report it to a, a psychologist or a neuroscientist. That, that was just the the hurdle that hadn't been crossed before, amazingly enough. Do people have to attend to it? I mean, no. I was, uh, so, so I might say, is that a bird? And, and they might say, well, I didn't actually see it very well, but it sounded like a butterfly. <laughs> <laughs> is that possible? I think so, yeah. So that would mean it was kind of happening before that attention mechanism or before conscious, um, the mechanisms responsible for consciousness that are modality specific. So, I suspect so. The uh, other thing is if you see like a butterfly. And it's also, it's fast. Uh-huh. It's, yeah. it's, it's fast. In the, in the uh, experiment, we presented uh, flashes of light that were 100 milliseconds apart, um, which is fairly fast. And um, the... Uh, the synesthetes since uh, had had uh, no problem uh, associating beeps with individual flashes of light that were a hundred milliseconds apart. So I was going to ask you about motion, like a butterfly moving against the backdrop of self motion. So motion on motion. Uh-huh. So like how is this? Is this a sort of a primary? Like you know. An object moving this way in any mm-hmm. context is always going to make a particular noise as opposed to complex scenarios where you've got that object on top of backdrop of another kind of motion that makes another kind of noise. Like, have you looked at stuff like that? That's a good it, question. We, we should test that. <laughs> I'd, I'd ask uh-huh. you about self-motion because uh-huh. it just seems like it would be so noisy <laughs> all the time. <laughs> I have a question, and um, uh, I asked before the, the podcast, but how can this uh, benign condition yeah. relate to more pathological mm-hmm. conditions such as schizophrenia, right? Uh-huh. And in terms of, like, synesthesia seems to be a very reliable thing. Yeah. And I guess that's why they can, uh, 
desensitized or control it, right? Mm -hmm. But in a situation of a schizophrenia where things are more random, mm -hmm. maybe, I mean, that a visual stimuli or any kind of stimulus can evoke some kind of uh, auditory reaction, mm -hmm. or, or more complex, right? But, but it's more random, and probably that's why they mm -hmm. cannot control it, and that's, that triggers a lot more. Stuff. But are schizophrenics mm -hmm. hearing like tones, or are they they're hearing voices? But I'm just saying that this could be a, a, a way One a milder, a way milder uh, um, level uh -huh. of this cross modality, this crosstalk between um, the uh, the cortex uh -huh. that, in a more pathological uh, case, uh, causes schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, it's, 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 well, of course we don't really mm -hmm. know yet. We haven't tested enough people to to know whether um, synesthesia corresponds to any other predisposition for any other feature or pathology or previous life experience like music training or or or, 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 or anything yeah we, we, we don't we don't the family trees Right. Or bipolar disorders. Well probably bipolar yeah. disorders wouldn't uh -huh. matter but uh -huh. but actually yeah but this kind of thing is uh -huh. common with hallucinogenic drugs. Uh -huh. yeah. yeah, we were talking about LSD. Yeah, it'd be interesting how actually how how okay, so the hallucinations in the in the drug induced state, are they really consistent like a like a synesthesia? Every time you have the same input you experience the same thing, or are they more Unpredictable. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Can anybody answer? <laughs> 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 interesting if the sounds start, the sounds that you see start to seem weird. Uh -huh. uh, the synesthetic on drugs is the, uh -huh. are the sounds different? Are they always consistent? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. The interesting thing about it is that. But actually, uh -huh. this comes back to something I wanted to ask. A little bit about the kind of the recovery function in, in general. So one one question about whether um, would synesthetes be better at um, uh, being more sensitive to schizophrenia or something. But uh -huh. one thing that might be that's that's related is would they be better at, at uh, learning a second language mm -hmm. um, and things like uh -huh. being because uh, one of the suppose that you have if you have if you think of two languages uh -huh. as being two different modalities uh -huh. and the question of being actually fluent. You have to merge the representations to some degree, right? And uh -huh. one of the problems about learning a language late uh -huh. is you have this language and that language, and people are starting to say about uh -huh. less overlap in terms uh -huh. of uh, imaging studies and so uh -huh. forth. And so the question would be: if someone is is if this is a general mechanism uh -huh. of being able to yeah. to merge different representations, uh -huh. then those people may be better or more easily to be fluent in a second language in the sense uh -huh. that they're more easily. Uh -huh. uh, create merged cortical representations. Uh -huh. so that's my that's my prediction. Uh -huh. so I like that. Oh, well, here's here's a more specific prediction. They they might be better at learning lip reading mm -hmm. or reading music, sheet music, because I, those are both examples of of visual to auditory translation that we make mentally. Right, the strong strong McGurk effects. Yeah. Uh huh. Exactly. So it's when you uh, this is a really strong illusion if you if you have um, if you see someone's lips 
um, and you're saying Ba versus Ga, then and you you have a mismatch between the video that you show and the auditory thing that you show. Mm-hmm. You basically hear what you uh, something close to what you see, and you really can't. You can just turn it off, and you hear something different. You look up, and it sounds very different, and it's mm-hmm. very hard to turn off. But uh-huh. the strength of it may be modulated differently in some uh-huh. of these uh, in some of these synesthetes. Mm-hmm. I don't know whether that's a general. Mm-hmm. Multimodal kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, just like a lot common, but it, that would be also interesting to see if people where where you could get an advantage out of this auditory and visual uh, crosstalk, like in sports or uh-huh. uh, fighter jet pilots, uh-huh. right? That actually they could get a significant advantage, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe the uh, prevalence. Could be higher. I mean, if you, mm-hmm. I mean, that would be kind of, I mean, I can't really kind of interesting, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, especially in the uh, Air Force. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, timing. I think, I think what it, what it helps you with is, is timing information. If, if you are, if you hear something, you're much better at judging its time relative to other events than if you see something relative to, mm-hmm. to other events. And actually, the, the, the test that we used as, in, in uh, to to kind of diagnose this this synesthesia um, took advantage of of, of, of that difference. Um, but you can think of a lot of everyday experience uh, examples in, in sports. Um, I mean, for example, um, uh, your tennis. Uh, say you're 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 watching your opponent, and your opponent has just um, hit the ball to send it back over to you. Uh, so people who play tennis they say, well, I'm I'm really paying attention. Not so much when I see the ball hit the racket. That's really hard to see. I'm paying attention to when I hear the thwack. And I use that sound information to judge the timing of when it's going to come back to me. And uh, if if uh, you were to plug my ears while I was playing tennis, I'd be a disadvantage. But batters yeah. say they see the ball, mm-hmm. right? And it comes at 90 or 100 miles per hour. Mm-hmm. And it's a 90 feet distance. Mm-hmm. But there's nothing to hear yeah. Was exactly. But there was something that is here, right? Well, if they were but what is there? What is there? There's nothing to hear. There's no uh-huh. twang. There's only uh-huh. the pitch and the guys are probably. Uh-huh. I mean, this like uh-huh. weird hypothesis, yeah. right? I could probably hear uh-huh. on top of the fifty thousand uh-huh. people yeah. that are cheering. Uh-huh. Uh, the ball like, coming at that, the and this lightning on the ground, and yeah. you can calculate this thing. And you're talking huh. about 500 milliseconds. Yeah. I did it in my computational neuroscience uh-huh. class. Uh-huh. It's 500 milliseconds. The uh-huh. this, the time from uh-huh. it's probably a little bit longer because like it accelerates, but uh-huh. uh, uh, probably a thousand milliseconds. Uh-huh. Okay. The first order, approximately. Yes, I mean you feel the mean ballpark. <laughs> <It's> like, <yeah. laughs> Probably for baseball, <laughs> but it's like between uh, yeah. a thousand milliseconds, uh-huh. right, to get uh-huh. to home plate, yeah. and uh, it takes two hundred milliseconds yeah. to start moving. Uh huh. Uh-huh. Uh, I mean, yeah. yeah. Right. So let's, yeah, we should test baseball players. Uh, uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. You can get free tickets. <laughs> <laughs> Another example the that one of my volunteers uh, gave me. She uh, uh, plays the the violin, not professionally, just just uh, for fun. And she has always used the synesthesia as part of her experience. So if she looks at the uh, her hands guiding the the bow. Is that what you call mm-hmm. the violin? The bow, yeah. Uh, guiding the the bow on, on her violin, and so so she's of course listening for the sound of the violinist feedback. But she also has sounds associated with her particular 
hand movements. Mm -hmm. She's paying attention to that sound as well, and she uses that. Great. We're looking forward to seeing more about these guys in the future. Hearing more. Hearing more. Hearing more. <laughs> Hearing more. <laughs> Hearing more. <laughs> 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 Hopefully more yeah. to come. Well, thank you, Melissa Science. You're welcome. And I really enjoyed it. That yeah. was a lot of fun. This podcast is a great idea, and more universities should be We have it on record now. All right. Go to UTSA. <laughs> 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 the neuroscientist touch up. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.